Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. All right, we're going to take a departure from the book of Romans and go to the book of James for a couple of weeks. As you see in your bulletin announcements, we are in stewardship season. And so as I prayed for what to talk about, uh, the Lord led me to James 4, where we'll look at that today, and then James 5 uh, next week. It's a two-part series entitled The Good Life. Uh, part one is My Plans. And our sources include James Montgomery Boyce's book, Sure, I Believe, So What? Anthony Bird's commentary on James, Practice Makes Perfect, from the Wellwind series. A sermon by Rick Warren, How to Face Your Future. And from the communicator's commentary on uh, James by Paul Cedar. So please stand with me from uh, James 1. Stand with me for the reading of God's word. James 4. James 4, I'm sorry. Starting at verse 13. This is the word of God. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for your brother, James. Thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that teaches us this truth today. So would you open our hearts, Lord, that our hearts would not be closed but wide open to the things you want to say to us. Even when it gets to sensitive things like how we spend our money, speak to us, Lord, that we might truly be your servants in this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Harvard psychologist and researcher Daniel Gilbert opens his best-selling book. The book is entitled Stumbling on Happiness. He opens with what he calls the sentence. The sentence. The sentence begins with these eight words. The human being is the only animal that... What? The human being is the only animal that... And you fill it in. Gilbert argues that every professor needs to finish that sentence. And I think every person should finish that sentence. So how do you think Gilbert finished... The sentence. I mean, what is the defining feature of being a human being? Gilbert's a secular psychologist, but I think his answer is very insightful. Here's what he said. The human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. The the only animal that thinks about the future. And I think for all of us in this place... It's the future that keeps us up at night. It's the things we think about that make us toss and turn in the bed, unable to sleep. 
He goes on to say, human beings think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple, ordinary act is the defining feature of our humanity. The average adult spends 12% of the day thinking about the future. So in an eight-hour day, that's one hour. (laughs) In an eight-hour day, that's a whole hour of the eight hours. Thinking about the future. We can imagine events because we are human beings way out into the future. If more than several minutes are involved, there's no animal that can keep up with us. I mean, you know, I've always been a little bit envious of dogs when you watch a dog sleep. Not a care in the world, right? But even though we think about the future a lot, We really cannot control the future. And that's the struggle. It's really hard, isn't it? You want to control the future. But we tend to think we can control the future. In the book of James, we have a powerful warning to those of us who think we are in control of our lives. Now, context is always king in interpreting scripture, so you need to understand context. Earlier in the same chapter of James, we didn't read this, but James speaks to the issue of worldliness becoming like the world when he writes this in James 4, 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Real strong words. But James is reminding us worldliness is an attempt By the creature, that's us, to play God by throwing off any dependence on the Creator. James is writing to churches that had a small number of wealthy businessmen. Most of the congregation was struggling financially. But not many of us are wealthy entrepreneurs. So we need to think about this passage from the standpoint of how do we plan for our future? How do we chart our future while at the same time acknowledging that we serve a sovereign God who is in charge? So James gives a very practical approach to planning for the future. And in doing so, he lays out three specific sins, three specific sins that can keep us from planning for the future according to the will of God. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ... We should plan for the future according to the will of God. But there are three sins that keep us from doing that. And the first sin we're going to spend more time on because it's a lot easier to spend time on because we do it so well. The sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. So look at verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city, that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. You say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, people make plans every single day, right? In fact, the Bible seems to point out again and again that it is foolish not to plan. So there's nothing wrong with planning. So what's the problem? The problem is all of this planning is done with no thought whatsoever for what God thinks about it. None whatsoever. Proverbs 27 verse 1 says this. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Do not boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring. So James says such speech is presumptive in several ways. 
One, it presumes that we will live as long as we please. Two, it presumes we can make whatever plans we please. And three, it presumes we have the capacity to execute whatever plans we please. Contrast King David. David constantly inquired of the Lord. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Not far after the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. There we are. So 2 Samuel 5 and listen to verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now, the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. What does that mean? He talked to the Lord about this. David inquired of the Lord. And he asked, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And the Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands, which is what happened. Now, skipping to verse 22, once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gizer. So James warns his readers, and he does so in a context that will be very familiar to his readers. He uses the analogy of a Jewish merchant who's planning to go to another city, spend a year there in that city, buy, sell, make a profit, then return home. And translated into modern terms, we have a description of the inner workings of a present day boardroom. And how often do we take the time, Christian businessmen, to inquire of the Lord? Should we do this or should we not do this? There are many times in Scripture where we're, we're urged to pray over our decisions. And even to pray, Lord, close this door if it's not of you. And we see in the book of Acts where the Lord did close the door on, on, on Paul doing certain things, going into certain cities and whatnot. So imagine these directors, though, seated around this plush table while the CEO outlines the company's plan to open new markets. Slides are shown uh, of the demographics, architectural drawings display a new plant, spreadsheets indicate profit margins. Uh, it's a scene that's repeated every day throughout the corporate world. And just like this merchant in our text, businessmen presume that their plans are theirs to make and that God has really nothing whatsoever to say about it. So I think it's a really great reminder here. This brand of thinking is faulty because it ignores three truths. Number one, it ignores our ignorance. I mean, we really do think a lot of times we're wise in our own eyes. We think we can plan a year in advance. We think we can come and go as we please. But we don't even know what tomorrow may bring. So it ignores our ignorance. Number two, it ignores our frailty. Because look at verse 14, James says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
You are a mist. Think about a mist now. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You ever been to a lake or maybe you live near the water and you watch the morning mist that appears and then disappears in just a matter of an hour or so? The beauty of a sunrise on a lake is a beautiful treasure. But by mid-morning, the mist is gone. God says, from the standpoint of eternity, our lives are like a mist that appears for just a little while and then is gone. You know, it's like that saying that we talked about recently. The days are long, but the years are short. So take stock of your life is what he's saying without presuming upon God. And then the third thing, the third truth is it ignores our dependence on God. Ignores our ignorance, our frailty, and then our dependence on God. James says, hey, it's okay to say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But he says, as you do, you need to preface it with, if the Lord permits me to. If the Lord allows me to. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to forget that as a mere human being, I have no idea what tomorrow holds. You know, uh, we never know what's around the bend, Right. We never know what phone call we're going to get, what news we're going to hear. Our God has that ability to know what's going to happen tomorrow. He's in all the details, a lot more so than the devil, as we've always heard. The devil's in the details. God's a lot more in the details because he's infinite. He's all wise. He's omniscient. He knows all. You and I, on the other hand, are finite creatures with limited capacity. We are limited in our knowledge, and God is not. So James tells us not to be presumptuous about our plans, but he also tells us not to be presumptuous about life itself. Two reasons. Number one, life is unpredictable. That verse again, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. In other words, your life is not in your hands, but it's in God's hands. And there's a parable in Luke chapter 12. I want to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 12. So turn with me to Luke 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a very rich man who was so wealthy, his barns were filled to overflowing. And this is called the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Listen to verse 13. Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You know, friends of mine that have moved recently, they know this verse very well. Because they've had to pack up a lot of things and give away a lot of things. How long has it been since you moved out of your house? Well, you do it and you'll find out you have a lot of stuff stored up for many lifetimes. Isn't it crazy how much stuff you can accumulate? My wife's been talking about how crowded our bedroom is with stuff because we need a bookshelf. So I got books everywhere. There are books all over the house. We want a a bookshelf for the books. So um, at any rate, we all have this stuff, right? How many of you have so many clothes you can't wear them all? 
You know, you have clothes you haven't worn in years, but they're still hanging there. You know, Jesus was so wise and smart when he said life does not consist in the abundance of all these possessions. He was speaking to us. And so he told this story about the wealthy man whose barns were filled to overflowing. He said the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, he thought to himself, self, what should I do? You know, have you ever done this to do a little self-talk? What should I do? I know what I'll do. I have no place to store all my crops, so this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, this is verse 19, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You see, this this farmer, this rich fool, he presumed he had all these years ahead. He didn't. The death angel was coming that night. He didn't know that. But he prepared like it was going to be years. Life is very unpredictable. And that's what Jesus is reminding us here when he says, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So we're going to talk more about being rich toward God next week and what that means. But the sin of presumption really stands in our way. Of trusting God with our life. That's the first sin. The second sin is the sin of boasting. Sin of boasting. Verse 15 is the proof that James is not against planning for the future. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with planning for the future. But instead, you ought to say, he says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or we will do that. And so the difference comes from the recognition As a Christian, as a Christ follower, that God is sovereign over my life, over the whole of my life. So you should pray and then you should plan. You should inquire of the Lord and then you should plan. And as you do, you humbly submit those plans to the greater wisdom of God. Obviously, this thinking did not originate with James. And I prayed in my prayer that this is the brother of Jesus, James was. And and so James... Got a little bit of his material. His source was his brother, Jesus. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus is talking about how we should pray. And he said we should pray, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Jesus even made this petition an essential element of our praying. And he prayed this way himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed, the night he was arrested. He's preparing for what's about to happen. And so in great agony, he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to be separated from you on the cross. It wasn't the physical agony that he was dreading, although that was, I'm sure, a part of it as a man. But he was dreading being cut off from his father. And so he prayed, I don't really want this, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prayed it himself. And so the question I have for you is, is James suggesting that we should be super spiritual and always tack on to the end of whatever we intend to do, if the Lord wills it, 
I mean, you know, you've heard people say that, and it sounds a little super spiritual. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the mindset is, I'm trusting you, Lord, whether this happens or not. You don't have to say the right words. So there are different ways to say it. Paul the Apostle used it in many different ways, but it's simply an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the future is His, and that He is both good and wise, and that whatever happens, He can be trusted. And if your approach is not like this, James calls it boasting. James doesn't want us to miss the fact that anyone who boasts about the future does so out of arrogance. So look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. The Greek word for boasting is alazoneia, which speaks in its root meaning of a wandering quack who would be sort of like the medicine man in the frontier days of, of America. The quack would offer cures, which were really not cures. He boasted of his ability to do things he really couldn't do. That's what a quack did. And so this sin is based on the false assumption that we are able to control our own destiny. That we somehow have the power to determine the course of our own lives. Now, it's interesting to me that this word boasting in James, it only appears twice in the entire New Testament. It appears here and in 1 John 2. So turn to 1 John chapter 2 and let's look at verse 16. 1 John 2, verse 16. And in verse 15 is kind of one, it's context. We need to make sure and check that out. So listen to 1 John 2, 15 and 16. 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, for everything in the world. And I put some in parentheses here so I can kind of go over this with you. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, which the NIV says the lust of the flesh. Those are your cravings. Those are the things you desire. Your cravings, the lust of the flesh. The lust of his eyes, which is pretty self-explanatory. We see something, we want it, we try to get it. And then the boasting of what he has and does, which is the pride of life, according to the NIV. The pride of life. The boasting of all this stuff that I have, all this that I'm going to do, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And then he puts it all in perspective in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. James says this kind of boasting is evil. It's the same word for evil which is used in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, the evil one. So what's the alternative Live for today, live for today, plan for the future, but live in the present. So look at Matthew 6 with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. This is also in the Sermon on the Mount. And so these are the words of Jesus. If you have anxiety, if you have worry, if you worry about things. Look, I'm a preacher, pastor, but I, I worry. So, trust me, this is a great verse for me as well as for you. This is what Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of its own. Is, is there ever been a truer statement made? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Spencer Johnson, the man who wrote the, the book, The One Minute Manager, he wrote another book called The Perfect Present. And in his book, he said the perfect present is literally the perfect tense, the present tense. And that's all we have, the present tense. It's all I have to give to this world, not next hour, not next day, next month, but right now. And that's the gift that God has given to me, so I ought to have that gift foremost in my thinking as I'm living my life. The temptation is to think about the future and dream about the future and plan for the future, and we should do some of that. But we should also really focus on the present, because the present is all you have. So the sin of presumption, the sin of boasting, and finally, the sin of omission. The sin of omission. Seems like this is a strange verse jumping into this passage, but it's all in the context of what he's talking about, about how we think about the future and plan without thinking of God. And so verse 17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You know, I think this is the most difficult sin to deal with. We focus a lot on sin being the act of doing things we should not do. But here's a, a situation where we're talking about things that we should have done but didn't do. Now, growing up in a liberal Presbyterian church, I may not have learned a whole lot from the preaching. But I learned a lot from the confession of sin. I learned that there are two types of sins, at least. There's sins of commission and there's sins of omission. Because we used to pray about those in our confession of sin. And I would think about that. What are those? So, James says to know what the right thing to do is, and then not to do it, is a sin. Jesus gave us a prime example of someone committing this sin in his parable of the talents. Two of the men in this parable were given talents, which is money, from their master. They were to invest it, and then wisely, and for doing so, they were to receive this reward from the master, as well as his approval. But one of the men did not invest his money. He buried it. You remember this story? He buried his talent in the ground. And then he just simply returned it to his master exactly as he had been given. With him, the master was not pleased. And the master punished himself, punished his servant severely. Why? Because according to Jesus, the man had sinned against this master. And get this, against himself. Against himself. You know, there's an old adage called shooting yourself in the foot. My wife and I talked about that adage yesterday about, I think, three o'clock. I think it's around three o'clock, something like that. Shooting yourself in the foot. It can happen in sports. It can happen in business. It can happen in life. You know where it comes from? There's a lot of sayings that we, we say all the time, but we don't know where they come from. This came out of World War I, when soldiers on both sides of the trenches would give themselves a non-fatal wound so that they wouldn't have to be on the front lines anymore. That's where it first came from. They'd shoot themselves in the foot so they'd get taken to the med- by the medic to the tent and then taken home. You know, there's a lot of ways that we shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to planning. 
when we plan and leave God out of the equation. The gospel is such wonderful news. How many people shoot themselves in the foot that worship in a church like this every Sunday? Hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, never committed one sin, was totally righteous, which he had to be for him to die on that cross. And actually his his punishment actually count for something. If he wasn't perfectly, perfectly righteous, if he wasn't a spotless lamb, his death on the cross would have meant nothing. But he was perfect. He took your place and my place. He is our hope. He is the anchor on which we are, we are, we are, we are built as a, as a church, as an individual. And yet, how many people listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to repentance and life and faith and trust in him, and just walk on about their way and just go on about their business and neglect the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you are shooting yourself in the foot every single day by losing out on the wonderful gift of eternal life, which gives you such joy in this world, but also eternal life to boot. But you know, shooting yourself in the foot also goes to the way we manage our lives. Jesus said, your life does not consist in the abundance of of, of your possessions. And yet we live sometimes like it does. So, yes, this is stewardship season, and there is a card in your bulletin, a stewardship commitment card, that I hope you'll not only pull out right now, but pull it out and and think about what's on that card. It's an opportunity, not today, next week, for you to actually make a commitment to God through this church. And we're a family here, and so if you're not a, a member of this church, then, you know, just recognize that this is not for you. Uh, it's not for you at all. This is for those who belong to this church family and make this their home and their commitment to Christ is through this church. So we're asking you to take this card home with you today and asking that you and your family have a discussion about your commitment to this church. And I'm asking that you complete the commitment card and bring it back with you next Sunday. Why? Because the Lord wants you to commit all of your life to him. And that all includes what you do with your possessions with your money. And that brings us to a verse of the week, which is Hebrews 13, verse five, Hebrews 13, verse five. Let's read this out loud together. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so listen to me as we close. James had a conviction that instead of presuming or boasting or missing the mark by the sin of omission, we should commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and to doing his will. Our planning must be based on the conviction that our lives and our futures are not in our hands, but in the hands of God. There's a Latin phrase, Deo Valente, which means God willing. Deo Valente, it should become the motto of our lives. God willing. We should live in complete dependence upon the sovereign will of our God because our lives and our futures are His. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for the life that You've given us, a life that we probably take for granted. Thank You for giving us this day, Lord. This is a beautiful day. You've given us to live. And yet, a lot of us are focused on what happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow. 
And we miss the joy of living. Lord God, thank you that you have promised to provide for your children. Your word says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children, his seed begging for bread. That's an incredible quote, Lord, from your word. And so thank you for the blessings of trusting you and following you that you promised to provide for your children. And so, Father, I pray that all of us in this church would be good managers, good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. Those things that we call ours, they're really on loan from you. Because, Lord, your word is clear. We won't take it with us. We leave it all. And so I pray that you would help us to live the way we would have to live in the next world. Where we cannot take all these things with us. Help us, Lord, to remind ourselves that you are the owner of all that we have. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Give us the grace, Lord, today. To turn our lives and our possessions over to you. And to be a faithful steward for your kingdom. I ask it in Jesus name. Amen.